And if you're here tonight, you have made it to the last Bible study in the book of Deuteronomy. After maybe 35 weeks around then, we've now come to the border. A big transition for the nation of Israel and a transition for us as a Bible study. And for the past few weeks, you and I have been hearing how Moses has been giving his final words to the nation. Uh, Not just because uh, it's the end of the message in the book of Deuteronomy, it's because it's the end of his life as well. And what we're about to read in chapter 33 are actually the last words of Moses. We've been saying that for the past few weeks, but now whatever we're about to read, this is it. These are the very final words that this man will utter before his people, and that would be recorded for our benefit and for the glory of God. Last week we talked about how he gave a song, how God inspired him to give him a song for the people to memorize and to pass out from generation to generation. And now he's going to just be very personal, but also under God's prophetic power as he declares these words. Let's read verse 1 and see what he's going to do. He says here, this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. And so we're told at the end of the last chapter before this, that Moses is literally steps away from his own funeral. He's actually going to walk up a mountain called Nebo, and God is going to meet him there and actually bury him. And so the the way the scriptures want to define Moses' last moments is in this verse. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. Do you know how Moses ended his life? As a blessing. Uh, Not just because his words would be a blessing, which we're about to find out, but Moses' life was a blessing. Moses' obedience to the call of God was a reason why the nation could come out of Egypt. Moses' continual obedience throughout the wilderness was a great reason why they were preserved as a people group. And Moses, because of the heart that he had, with his last words, he's going to bless the people that he has shepherded for 40 years. And that tells us a wonderful thing. What a description for the ending of a man's life, that he was a blessing. You and I can have that same opportunity if we choose to walk in God's will. That instead of our lives becoming a burden, instead of our lives becoming blasphemous, our lives can actually be a contribution to other people in their well-being when it comes to their relationship with God. Every single person has that same opportunity. And it requires to become what Moses became, and we'll find that out in a moment. But here's the wonderful truth, because we look at a man like Moses, we go, he got a pretty good track record. I mean, he only messed up royally once, and that's why he wasn't going into the promised land. But even if your entire life, or most of it at least, was not a blessing to anybody, including yourself and including God, that can change if you're willing to change. Because before Moses is about to bless every single one of the tribes, there was another man who blessed the tribes of Israel. Who was that man? Who was the man that blessed his sons the same way Moses blessed his sons. Jacob. Jacob himself did that. You read at the end of Genesis, you see he does the same thing. He blesses his sons before he dies as well. But when you know Jacob's life, you realize that his good portion of his life is nothing nothing of a blessing. If anything, he was a burden. 
If anything, he lives up to his name, a heel grabber. He tricked his brother. He deceives his father. Uh, you, you couldn't trust the man with his words. He always had a plan of taking advantage of you for his own benefit. That's, that's what described most of Jacob's life. But Jacob didn't end that way. In fact, look how the Bible describes Jacob in Hebrews eleven twenty one. This is a wonderful description of the end of Jacob's life. It says, by faith Jacob, when dying, that's what we're talking about, when dying, what does it say about him? Blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So that the way that the Bible describes Jacob is that he was blessing and he was worshiping. He was blessing the sons of Joseph and you see him leaning upon that staff and he was giving praise to God. That, that gives hope to you and I. That you can, you can change now and I, I wouldn't wait till you're later on in life. I would encourage you to be a blessing now because when you bless others, you yourself will know something of a blessing. Why waste some time to live selfishly? Jacob gives us hope that everything can change and it doesn't matter how you started, it doesn't matter how long you were in that season of deception or that lifestyle of rebellion, you can end as a blessing and you can end worshiping God. What a way to go from earth to eternity. But then it says something else in this verse that we have to pay attention to. This is why it's so important to read the Bible slowly. What else do you see in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 33 that, that comes out to you? If you see it, point it out. What do you see? Anything stick out? He is called a man of God. Do you know why that's important? It's because it's the first time that this phrase is used in the Bible. Before this, you will never see the term man of God ascribed to anybody. And we are now introduced to Moses being referred to as a man of God. What a title that the Holy Spirit can give such an individual. It's as though your life is so caught up in the Lord that the way you live and the way you speak causes individuals to say, that's a man of God. Causes people to say, this person walks with God. Going to church once a week doesn't make you a man of God. Attending Bible study doesn't make you a man of God, or a woman of God for that matter. But Moses was a man of God. And it does us real good to, to try to understand why would the Holy Spirit, out of all the other people that we were introduced to before this moment, why does the Holy Spirit want to say for the first time, Moses, man of God. And I think we can go to many places to find out why. But if there's any place to understand the heart of this man, it's in Hebrews as well. In Hebrews 11, not 21, but 24. And look how the Bible describes Moses. And we're going to get some insight to know how he was a man of God. In Hebrews 11, 24, it says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God, then to what? Enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Who said sin wasn't pleasurable? The Bible says that sin is pleasurable. But it's fleeting. That's the difference. See, the Bible says in his presence is the what? Fullness of joy, and at his right hand are what? Pleasures. How long? 
forevermore. So you just have to choose where you're going to get your pleasure from. Is it going to be fleeting pleasure from sin or forevermore from the hand of God? Many people like the former, but Moses didn't. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Look at verse 26. It says here that he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. If that is not a description of a man of God, I don't know what is. So we go back to verse 24, and let's unpack this and understand in our Bible study why Moses is deemed as a man of God. When he was grown up, so he was an adult, he had the ability to reason and make decisions independently, he now, he now can make his own choices, and as an adult, he chose that I'm going to refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That's significant. Because Moses, who knows how long Moses was in Egypt for before he left into the land of Midian. Does anybody know his, his age? 40. Acts 7.23 tells us that at 40 years old, Moses had it in his heart to go out and to deliver his people from bondage. So for 40 years, a good portion of those 40 years, Moses is in not just Egypt, he's in the palace. He's living in the courts of Pharaoh. Tell me a more tempting place in all of Egypt during that time. Tell me a more tempting place to utilize resources and authority for your selfish gain. Tell me a more tempting place than to be known as a relative of Pharaoh. And yet we are told in Acts 7.23 that for 40 years, his first 40 years of life, you know what that includes? The demographic in this room, for his 20s and his 30s, he was in that position. And guess what Moses in his 20s and 30s chose not to do? To be identified with the system of Egypt. To adopt the worldview of Egypt. To succumb to the temptations of Egypt. To be an idolater like the Egyptians were. He refused to be identified with that system in his 20s and his 30s. Now if it's possible for Moses, isn't it possible for you in high school? If it's possible for Moses, is it possible for you in your filthy workplace? If it's possible for Moses, isn't it possible for you? No matter what atmosphere you find yourself in. It was possible and it is possible for you and I today. He was a man of God because he would not identify with Egypt. And then it tells us in the next verse that he was what? He, he chose something very specific. He chose to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So Moses had a choice now. He goes, should I be mistreated with the Hebrews or should I live in my whole life in luxury and in authority? What, what am I going to choose here? You know what many people choose? They, they choose that. I've been given an opportunity of a lifetime. I'm a Hebrew. I don't deserve, I don't, I don't even know how this happened, but here I am. I'm a son of Pharaoh's daughter. I'm going to live it up. Make it equivalent to you winning the lottery in our day. What would you do if you won the lottery? Would you continue to be mistreated with the people of God where you say, see you later, I'm going to live my life to the fullest? I'll tell you, many people, when they got that kind of opportunity, you'd be amazed to know how wicked your heart will get. But no, for Moses, he goes, even with this position and even with this opportunity and even with this influence, I'm going to rather choose to be persecuted with the people of God and live in a wilderness and wear the same outfit every single day and push myself away from the, the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
you want to be closer to becoming a man or a woman of God, one of the decisions that you're going to have to make is, am I going to be connected to, am I going to fellowship with the church, even though we are despised and shamed by this world? Or am I going to identify myself with worldly people that live by different convictions? Many people cannot be a man of God or a woman of God because they can't separate themselves from other men or women. Oftentimes, if you want to be a man of God or a woman of God, you might have to stand alone for a season and be a man of God or a woman of God, sometimes in the absence of other men of God and women of God. It's unfortunate, but that's the call. And then it tells us something else. It gives us the insight to this man's drive to become what he was known as, a man of God. In verse 26, it tells us that what? He chose the reproach of Christ. Greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He considered, he goes, I'm going to weigh this out. And I think being persecuted and mocked for Jesus is better than the treasures of Egypt. I'm not going to stay on this point too long, but listen, too many people are blinded by the, the, the glitter and the, and the lights of the treasures of Egypt that they can't, they can't stay focused long enough to live consistently like Moses was as a man of God. But you know what possessed this man for him to just even look past all of those things? He was looking to the reward. So here's another insight to becoming a man or a woman of God. Again, not a Christian. We have a lot of Christians. We have a lot of professing Christians. A man of God, a woman of God, they live with an eternal perspective. There's no way that you can, you can receive such a wonderful title by God himself if you can't look to the reward. But a person who is living in that, they have this different concept of life. They see it beyond their 60, 50, 70 years. They look at a reward. They look at meeting Christ face to face. They look at a city that is to come. They look at treasures that moth cannot destroy and thieves cannot steal. And this is what possessed the man Moses. For him to become a man of God, these qualities surely were there. But you know what's amazing about Moses becoming a man of God? How in the world did he develop those convictions? I mean, if you read a story very carefully, you realize that his mother put him in a little basket and put him in the reeds there in the river. And then while Pharaoh's daughter comes to bathe or whatever she's doing there, you see the servants, they recognize it. They, and then the baby's given to the mother again to nurse Moses. And then it doesn't tell us the, the amount of years, but you can, you can assure yourself that when he was old enough, he was given to Pharaoh's daughter and he grew up in the palace. Sure enough, he did not learn these convictions by Pharaoh's daughter. But he was a man of God. And I believe he developed these things in his life in exactly that moment that we just described. That there is a moment in his life, in Exodus 2.8, let's just read it on the screen and see where these things were implanted and deeply deposited in his heart. In Exodus 2.8, look what the scripture says here. And Pharaoh's daughter said, go, because... Moses' sister was like, hey, you know, I know a Hebrew lady that can nurse him. She goes, go, take him. So the girl went and called the child's mother, Moses' mother. And in verse 9, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. In verse 10, when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. You know, all of the things that you and I just read in Hebrews 11, 24 to 27, were developed in verse 9. You know what that means? It means this, that uh, when, 
Moses' mother got the opportunity to take her child back and get paid for it. Isn't that awesome? Here, we're going to pay you to take care of this child. It was my child anyway, but thank you. I'll take the check. She wasn't just concerned about nursing him physically. You know what Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter didn't understand what was going on? Is that when she gave Moses up to that random Hebrew woman, she gave him up to a woman of God. And when she took Moses, she nursed him. But she also said, listen, Moses, don't get caught up with the treasures of Egypt. There's another realm. It's an eternal realm. And those things are the things that you need to live for, Moses. Moses, you have a wonderful opportunity. But your dad and I believe that God has given you this position to be a deliverer. To be someone of, a, of an influencer for the kingdom of God. Don't get caught up with position. Don't get caught up with promotion. Don't get caught up with praise. You're a man of God, Moses. Live for God. Moses, you're going to make some decisions in life that will contradict the system of Egypt. Don't fear the king. Don't fear the king. Your dad and I did not fear the king when he made a decree that we should not have children. Because if we were to have a child that was a boy, he would be dead. But don't fear. We didn't fear. Look at where you are right now. You don't fear. God has had your life from the beginning under control, and he will continue to have your life under control. You're saying, I've never read any of those things, and that's fine. We are reading into the text. But I'll tell you this, that Moses learned from his parents. You say, how? Let's go back to Hebrews 11. Look at this very carefully. Hebrews 11, and before 24, there's another verse that doesn't speak about the faith of Moses. It speaks about the faith of who? Moses' parents. Look at verse 23. By faith, Moses... When he was born, we read in verse 24, when he grew up, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. We don't know what that really means, but the next part is what's important. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Do you see? The scripture says that the parents were not afraid that the fact that they've birthed a child who was a male, that something would happen by the king. They trusted God. You know, this is a wonderful verse to prove one thing. You've probably said it. You've probably heard it. You probably believe it deeply in your heart. This statement, I don't want to bring a kid into this wicked world. I don't know how I'm going to raise a child in this filthy generation. I'm so scared to bring my children into the school system. What are they going to learn from the media and their friends? I'd rather have no children at all. Have you thought it? Have you had conversations about people who believed it? Yeah, Moses' parents weren't concerned about that. They weren't scared bringing a child into the world. They weren't scared of the wicked system of Egypt and their laws. They trusted God with their child. Don't let the devil intimidate you and I from bringing offspring into this world that would potentially advance the kingdom of God. Don't let him be a bully to you and I. They were not afraid of the king's edict. Why is that important? The parents were not afraid, the Bible tells us, now scroll down to verse 27. Let's go to the verse that we just read. By faith, he left Egypt, being Moses. And what does it say right there? Not being afraid. Not being afraid of the anger of the king. Where, where did Moses learn that? From mommy and daddy. Mom and dad weren't afraid. Moses wasn't afraid. 
because he learned from them. And you better believe that he learned to be a man of God in that window of time by his mother and father to deposit truth in him. You know what that tells me? It tells me at least one thing. That you can so raise up a child in the fear of God and you can stick him right in the center of Pharaoh's palace and not worry about his convictions being swayed from. Get a man not to fear man, but to fear God and see what he can do for, for God. So you see a mother and father that didn't fear the king, and because they didn't fear the king, little Moses adopted that same attitude because he learned some things about the truths of God, and he brought that into where he was, into his environment, into his workplace. You and I can have the same opportunity. Let's not use the grace of God, and let's not use the fallenness of humanity as an excuse not to be known as a man or a woman of God. Let's look at examples like Moses and say, if it was possible for such a man, it's possible for me. That's why the Bible gives us these amazing examples. Moses was a man of God. Here's the question as we close this book tonight. I have a question for you as we end this book. Yes, all of you, individually. Do you want to be a man of God? Do you want to be a woman of God? Like, what's your goal in life? Ask yourself, just sit there tonight in this Bible study and ask yourself this simple question. Do I have a hint of desire to be a man of God? Do I have any desire within me to be a woman of God? You know, so many people are, not, are satisfied with being good, not godly. So many people are satisfied with just going to church and just getting busy with activity and not living as a man of God or a woman of God. What a wonderful thing for the Holy Spirit to say about Moses and what a wonderful thing for the people to recognize about Moses. To be a man or a woman of God, you don't have to tell people you're a man or a woman of God. Just live by the same convictions that Moses did in Hebrews 11, 24 to 26 and you will be able to walk with that kind of an influence. Moses was a man of God. You know what's important about this? The first time that the man of God is being introduced in the Bible, it was given to Moses at the end of his life, not the beginning of his life. You know why that's important? It's because it's not how you and I start, it's how we finish. I'm assuming that everybody here, hopefully, is here because they've ran the race or they started the race of faith. That you want to live for Christ. You want to live this journey, this, these short years as a vapor for the glory of God. Know this very, 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 very important to understand that how you begin means very little. It's how you and I finish. Moses was a man of God at the end of his life. You know, one of the saddest commentaries you can hear about a Christian, especially as they grow up in years, is that when others may speak about him, they'll say, oh yeah, he was a man of God at one point. Oh man, you should have seen him in his 20s. He was, he was on fire for God. And what happened to him now? Ah, oh, you know, these things happen. And... Oh, she was a woman of God. She loved God. She lived for God. The, you know, being a man or a woman of God, it shouldn't be a weird thing, right? It shouldn't be a strange thing. You shouldn't look at a person and be like, Ugh. it should be one of the most attractive things in this life. But how many have this over their lives that they were someone who loved God wholeheartedly? You and I should strive to be a man or a woman of God at the end of our lives, just like Moses was. And it's possible. Keep your eyes on the reward. Don't get caught up with Egypt and the treasures that they try to present you. So now we come. He wants to bless the people, and he's about to do that. In verse 2 to 5, we'll see how much we're going to be able to cover in this short amount of time. 
before he gets into the specifics of blessing each tribe of Israel, he wants to let them know the source of blessing overall. He wants to let them know why they're about to be blessed and why they will continue in blessing throughout their days. And it's very simple here. We're not going to go in detail. Look at verse 3. First thing. Yes, he, being God, loved his people. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. The first point to understand of why we can be blessed and why we can continue in God's blessings is that he loves us. Plain and simple. He actually loves us. He actually cares for us. He, he's actually for you and for me. God, God, the same God that blessed them is the same God that wants to bless you and I. Because he loves, he, he desires it, he takes delight in it primarily. Secondly, he says in verse 4, when Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. Here's the second reason why they would know blessing and why you and I can know blessing. Because God has given us his word. We have to obey his word to know his blessing. We have to walk in his statutes and walk in his commandments to open the heavens of God's favor upon our lives. It comes through his word. And thirdly, what do we see in verse 5? Thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun. When the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. Here's the last thing. The first thing is he loved us. The second thing is he's given us his word. And lastly, because he's our king. Do you know why so many people can't experience God's blessing? It's because they have not yet given them the throne of their will. It's only until you say, Lord, you're not just going to be my savior, you're going to be my king, that you and I can know something of his lordship leading us into wonderful goodness to experience in this life. So you say, well, God loves me. That's great. But God, is he your king? Eh, I don't know. Some days. Good luck experiencing his blessings in your life. It's only when you deem him and crown him as Lord of all, not just generally or theologically, but over your personal life, you will now will experience his blessings. So, his love, which we rejoice in, his word, which is not just to be heard, but to be obeyed, and him being king determines the blessing that you and I experience in this life. If you do not have him as king over your life, any kind of blessing that you think you're experiencing is common grace, like he gives to the wicked. He gives rain to the wicked. He gives rain to the righteous. He gives food to the wicked. He gives food to the righteous. He gives warmth to the wicked and the righteous. It's common grace. But specific blessing, he must be king. He must be king. So with that foundation set, this is where it gets exciting. Moses now is going to bless every single tribe individually. And I believe every single blessing that he pronounced has a lesson in there for you and I. Something of understanding of God's relationship with us and blessing Keep this in mind. In the Old Testament, blessing was heavily emphasized on what? What do you think blessing was emphasized on? Obedience, sure. But blessing in terms of what is the substance of God's blessing usually? Covenant, yes. But I'm talking about what does blessing look like in the Old Testament? Material. Uh, prosperity. Uh, good health and, and offspring. Those are still God's blessings to us. But the emphasis is much different in New Covenant. It's all spiritual mainly. Spiritual understanding, spiritual power, spiritual things being accomplished, spiritual fruit is what Jesus is concerned about. And that should be what we are attracted to. Do you know why? Because the world wants the same things that God gave in the Old Testament. They want money, they want good health, and they want a lot of offspring, some at least. But we want the spiritual truths, and there are spiritual truths in here, and they're here for a reason, these different blessings. So let's re read about Reuben. Let's look here in verse 6. Let Reuben live and not die, but let his men be few, period. 
It's not very expansive, is it? It's not very detailed. This is the firstborn of all the tribes. And you have it in, let Reuben live and not die, but let his men be few. Does anybody have an idea why? This seems to be a very simple and to the point kind of blessing where it could have been more detailed. That's exactly the answer. As Isaac said, we have to understand the history of Reuben and his relationship with his father. When Reuben grew up in age, he fell into temptation and gave over his lust to one of his father's concubines, maids, so to speak. And because of that, that cost him a lot. In fact, when you go back to Jacob's blessing, it wasn't just a moment of Reuben's failure, which it is, where he failed royally, a grievous sin. But look what he says about Reuben in, in Genesis 49. You can turn there if you'd like. It's only a few pages back. In verse 4 is the same chapter that tells us Jacob's prophetic utterances over his children. But look what it says about Reuben. Unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. You can almost, you can feel Jacob's frustration there. That in the middle of his proclamation, he goes, he went up to my couch. So what do we see here is that Reuben, because of a grievous sin, lost preeminence. He forfeited a birthright because of that. And it was passed down to another son. But I believe too, when you look at the, the, the description of his character, unstable as water. He wasn't firm. He wasn't concrete. He was so shifty in his commitment and his convictions. And here's the lesson from Reuben's prophetic utterance over his life for all of us. That if you and I choose to live in certain sins, we risk of forfeiting God's blessings in the future. It's very simple. And what makes Reuben unique too is that there is no hint of repentance on his part. He did it and there seems to be no repentance. And so... Be careful of the decisions that you make. And it's, it's, a, it's a false concept to say all sins are the same. That is not true. All sins are not the same. Is all seen as sin before God? Sure, but there are some sins that have greater consequences than others. You know, I'm in, personally in Exodus and I'm reading through the plagues and I see even the, the different consequences of the plagues. That when Pharaoh repents, sometimes God gets rid of the plagues differently than others. Here's an example. When the frogs came and Moses was begged by Pharaoh to get rid of the frogs. You know what it tells us? It doesn't tell us like the flies and the different type of plagues that Moses brought a wind and he made them all disappear, every single one of them. It doesn't say that. Read the plagues of the frogs carefully. What you're going to see is that the frogs died right where they were and they had to pile them up and it says that the land stank with frogs. Saying, why are you telling us this? Because it's a picture of how sins, some of them have lasting consequences more than others. Sometimes the smell of our sin stays with us longer than other sins. And so we cannot choose the consequences of our sins, but we can choose whether we will sin or not. And that's what Reuben teaches us. Listen, do you want to rob yourself of blessing? Keep living in defiance, disobedience to God. Deceive yourself in thinking that this will not cost you something in your future. And you might be in for the shock of your life, especially if you're unrepentant. Sin robs us. So what's the blessing here? It's that even in their instability, God would still keep them as a tribe. That's what Moses is saying. He says, let him live and not die. 
That's a prayer of blessing, especially with somebody who's unstable. If you live inconsistently, if you have no firm foundation, you're bound to die in your spiritual walk. You're bound, to, you're bound to come crashing and burning. But Moses' prayer of intersection was like, oh, Lord, just please keep them. Man, imagine your, imagine your Christian life was boiled down to that. Just survival. Can you imagine? That your whole Christian life, you're just hanging by a thread between compromise and victory. That's not a way to live. Reuben, unfortunately, this is the picture he has. Let's look at the next one in verse 7. Of Deuteronomy 33. And this he said of Judah, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him into his people with your hands contend for him and be a help against his adversaries. Judah is another interesting character too because when you read up on his life, he wasn't so squeaky clean either. Judah did a lot of terrible things in his life. But what's interesting about Judah, I mean, you think about him in light of Joseph's relationship. What did Judah do? Does anybody remember that story when Joseph was coming to find his brothers to give a report to his father? And what, what happened when they took him? They threw him in the pit and then what? What did Judah, what was his idea? Let's sell him and make some money off of him. Judah was the voice that influenced the rest of the brothers to sell their own brother in blood to a bunch of random strangers to be a slave in some foreign country. Judah was responsible for that. And then you read about a moment in Judah's life in Genesis 38 where he commits very grievous sin. I mean, he sleeps with his daughter-in-law unknowingly, but he does it. He's confronted with that sin, and what does Judah do? He repents. He says, she is more righteous than I. And then the scripture tells us in a very important key point, it says, he never knew her again. That's repentance. Repentance is not you feeling bad about your sin. Repentance is not you crying about your sin. That's not repentance. Repentance is when you see your sin and choose to not do it anymore. It's a change of direction, not a change of emotion merely. So Judah says, you're more righteous than I. That's a confession. That's wonderful. But then the Bible goes on to say, he never knew her again. Oh, that's repentance. And you think, Judah, did he actually change? Because it's proven with time. And then one day, Joseph, when he encounters his brothers, wants to test them and see if they're the same so he comes up with this whole scheme and he he gets them to bring Benjamin then he he puts a little thing in Benjamin's sack and he finds out that he stole it or apparently sets him up and all the brothers are freaking out it took us so much to convince Jacob our father to bring Benjamin here and now we've messed up even again now he's going to take his other son that came from Rachel and who speaks up before Pharaoh's Second-hand man who was Joseph to say, take me instead. Who was it? The Bible tells us in Genesis 44, 33 that it was Judah. Judah said to Joseph, who was masked, take me instead of Benjamin. I'm willing to step in as a slave. Listen, the same guy that sold Joseph as a slave is now the guy that's saying, take me as a slave. That's a change of heart. That's repentance. That's the fruit of repentance. And then Joseph can't even contain himself. Joseph sees such a change that he calls everybody to get out of the room and he bursts out in tears and the, all, they're all shocked. They're like, this can't be real. And there's reconciliation there. What's the lesson to learn? Judah, in his early life, he changed. He, he turned from his wicked ways. And you know what he did? He opened himself to blessing. 
a different blessing than Reuben's blessing. So here's the lesson to learn from his life. No matter what we've done in our past, God is willing to bless us if we are willing to repent. That's what Judah's blessing teaches you and I. Well, you just said that some sins cause us so much grief in our lives that robs us of a blessing. Sure, it does. But that's not for you to determine. You just get on your face before God and say, forgive me, Lord, I want to change my ways and let him bless you according to his wisdom. Now we come to Levi, verse 7 11. Excuse me, verse 8. And of Levi, he said, and then he goes on to say, Give to Levi your Thummim and your Urim to your godly one, whom you tested at Massa, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Merabah. Levi, the tribe of Levi. Does anybody know what the responsibility was? We've spoken extensively on that, but who can say, What is the tribe of Levi given? Priesthood, spiritual leadership. In all of the nation of Israel, Levi. And they were going to teach God's word to the people. And they were going to even be given certain instruments, the Urim and the Thum, to be able to discern God's mind for particular things that are not written out in the law plainly. Certain events and decisions would be determined by the mediating work of the Levites. What an honor and a privilege. To, kind of, to step into that kind of a calling... And the Bible wants to go out of its way to make sure that you and I know the reason for it. It wasn't just happenstance. It wasn't just random. It wasn't just like eeny, meeny, miny, moe, Levi. It was because of something that they chose to do themselves. And it's in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Who said, Levi, who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. When did this happen? When did they choose to step into this kind of a mindset? Does anybody know? There's a moment. Go ahead. Who is on the Lord's side? When Moses said, who is on the Lord's side? When was that? This is a very important to understand. Golden calf scene. So here's the scene. Remember, Moses was at the top of the mountain. He comes down. Joshua's waiting. And they hear a sound from the camp, and they think, what's going on? And Joshua at least thinks, I think there's a sound of war. Moses says, no, it, there's, a, there's a party going on. Let's go check it out. So they go. And when they go, sure enough, it's not just a party. It's wickedness. You have people dancing around naked. And sexual things going on. And Moses, so stirred up, clearly, as a mediator, so stirred up clearly because he's up there getting the next step for them. And there they are. They can't even stay, again, stable. And so Moses says something, though, as an act of mercy. He comes up to a certain point, and he, he says, in the middle of this party, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. Realize that that is an act of mercy. Moses could have come down, and he could have called upon the Lord and just judged them all. But he says, I'm going to give one more chance. Even in the midst of your debauchery and your sin, who is on the Lord's side? And we're going to put up on the screen Exodus 32, 26. Look at what the Bible tells us. In Exodus 32, 26, it gives us a description of this scene, and it is so important to connect with this blessing. Then Moses stood, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And who came? All the sons of Levi gathered around him. Only one tribe. 
Only one tribe. The invitation was to everybody. He says, who? You know, 11 tribes could have come up and it would have worked. He wasn't saying, one tribe, whoever makes it first gets the prize. No. Who is on the general call and in the midst of their dancing and their beeping and their bopping? Levi goes, what are we doing? How did we get into this mess? Man, we're called for God. Let's get out of here. And they go up to Moses. Levi, only one tribe. I wonder if that's the proportion of people in a statistic way to say only one out of 12 tribes come to, the, to, to this conviction. One comes, and look what Moses says. That wasn't it. It wasn't like, great, I'm glad you guys came. He goes, no, God's going to test your devotion. And what is he going to say? In the next verse. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. It's one thing to say you're on the Lord's side. Now let's, let's see it actually in action. Take a sword, put it on your side, run back and forth, and kill everybody inside, even if it's your sibling. Even if it's your mother, even if it's your father, go back and forth and kill him. And you know what Deuteronomy 33 tells us? Exactly what they were thinking in that moment. You know what they were thinking? I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children. Wow. So they obeyed God to the point where they actually had to cut off family. But they opened themselves up to such a wonderful calling as a result of that. We cannot take this in the literal sense, but there's a great spiritual significance. And here's the lesson from Levi's blessing, that if you and I choose to obey and love God in our hearts more than our father, our mother, our brother, our sister, our boyfriends, our girlfriends, our friends, if you have come to that place where you say, I'm willing to step onto the Lord's side even if the rest of them stay behind, you position yourself for such a wonderful, wonderful experience in this life. But many are not willing to pay that price. Many in their minds cannot say, I regard them not. You know, cults love to use these kind of passages to isolate people from their families and never stay in communication with them. They use that Luke 14, 26 thing where it says that if you love your mother, your father more than me, and people, cults are created from that verse. That's not what Jesus is saying. Not communicating with your unsaved loved ones. That's not the idea at all. It's when you come to a place in your life where you have to choose God above them, you choose God. It's as simple as that. And this is what they chose to do. And God says, I can use that kind of a heart to do wonderful things. You've earned the right to be used to touch other people because your heart is convinced that I'm more important than even the person that you love the most on this earth. It's one thing to say, I'm on the Lord's side. It's another thing when God puts a sword in your hand, he says, now go kill him. I hope we're realizing that these blessings come at a cost. This isn't, this isn't God playing eeny, meeny, miny, moe and just sovereignly dishing out blessings without condition. There's condition. And they invite us to examine our own hearts. Let's go to verse 12 in Deuteronomy 33. Of Benjamin, he said, the beloved of the Lord dwells in safety the high God surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. That's it. So the blessing upon the tribe of Benjamin would simply be this. Divine protection. The high God, what? Surrounds him all the day. But not just divine protection. A divine love that would be experienced in the heart. That God 
Listen to this concept. You're talking to an audience that realized that God would dwell in a tent called the tabernacle. And God speaking over Benjamin says, not just in a tent, I'm going to dwell in the bosom of Benjamin. Now, there's nothing about Benjamin's life that would indicate what he deserves for this. I think that's important for us too, because in Jesus Christ, these blessings are ours as well. There's nothing that you and I do to deserve it. When we come into relationship with him, that's what we get as a guarantee. But you know what I love about Benjamin's life? What order was he in the family line, in the birth order? He was the last. And the Bible describes his birth experience. What does it say about this birth experience? His mother died giving birth to him. So you know what Benjamin had? Not that his other brothers had. Benjamin did not know what it was like to grow up with a mother that would love him and nourish him. That would, that would give him a tender embrace every night. Benjamin didn't know such a thing. The other brothers, they had their own mothers and they experienced that. But Benjamin, that was foreign to him. Maybe he experienced it from, from different sources. But I love how God showers him with the assurance that his heart will know something of a love that maybe wasn't there when he grew up. He didn't know it from his mother directly because his mother wasn't there. Maybe he definitely got it from his father. We see that in the scriptures. But God goes, I'm going to dwell in your heart. I love this blessing that God knows how to fill the voids in our lives. Even when it comes to a love that might have been absent from somebody who should have loved. Then we come to Joseph. In verse 13 to verse 17, we won't read all of it. But to summarize, he says, Blessed by the Lord be his land, with the choicest gifts of heaven above. But what's important here is when we come down to verse 17. It says, A firstborn bull, he has majesty. His horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them he shall gore the peoples. All of them to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. So you and I know that when they go into the promised land, there is no such thing as a tribe of Joseph. But from Joseph would come what? Two tribes. Manasseh, Ephraim. And the blessing I believe that's described here concerning Joseph, because it's, it's understood as military success. And there is abundance as well in prosperity. But I believe the blessing that Joseph got to experience was that his own offspring, in other words, there was a double portion of his blessing through his sons and not necessarily directly to him. It could have been him individually, but instead God chose to take two of his sons and make two tribes out of him instead of him just being one tribe. You know why that's significant? Because Ephraim, the meaning of Ephraim's name is God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And if this blessing inspires anything, it inspires the hope that even if we are afflicted greatly by trials and tribulations, by the, the ill treatment of others, even those that are known as our brothers, it is in affliction that God will multiply fruit. It is in that season, even if it's a half your life, of arrow after arrow being shot at you, affliction after affliction haunting you. 
it's in that that God is able to create something and multiply something like he did in his life. If Joseph had not gone to Egypt, if Joseph wasn't sold as a slave, if Joseph didn't undergo all that he would have underwent, he would not have had Manasseh and Ephraim. See, it's through affliction that certain blessings can only be experienced. And those afflictions were so real to Joseph that he names his kids in light of them. Manasseh is, he, he made me forget all my afflictions. Ephraim is, he made me fruitful. Why? Because the second baby comes. He didn't just have a Manasseh, he had a Ephraim. He goes, I have another one. God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. That's the blessing. So you say, God bless me. He goes, okay, I'm going to crush you for a little bit to get it out of you. And we wonder, why am I in so much pain? Why are people betraying me? Why are people speaking behind my back? Why are people, why are we, and it, God is willing to do that to birth something out of you. That's the blessing. Some of us are like, mm, I kind of like Reuben's blessing more. It's very little, but you know, it doesn't cost much for me. In fact, I get to enjoy my flesh a little bit. I'll take Reuben's blessing. Levi, are you serious? Killing relationships in my life to honor God? No thanks. I love my friends at high school more than I love God. No way. Joseph, going through all of that to be blessed by God? No thanks. Let me take Reuben's blessing. I'm telling you, many people are satisfied with Reuben's blessing. Let me live, God. Let me just survive my Christian life. Don't disturb me. Don't ask me to, don't put a sword in my hand. Just let me live. Can I mess around with sin a little bit and still love me? I love that. Pathetic. Then we come to Zebulun in verse 18. And of Zebulun, he said, rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar, in your tents. They shall call peoples to their mountain. There they offer right sacrifices, for they draw from the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. So, Zebulun's blessing is attached to another tribe called Issachar. So it seems like Zebulun and Issachar like to hang out. Seems like Zebulun and Issachar had some kind of a relationship together for God to couple them in the same blessing. It's like Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi were coupled together because they had a certain relationship with one another. Rejoice Zebulun and you're going out. What's the blessing have to do with? That Zebulun and Issachar would, would be placed in the promised land and experience great abundance, specifically in business dealing with the seas. In fact, Zebulun is actually parked in the land of Canaan by the water. If you look at it geographically, the tribe would be right by the water. But I don't believe that Zebulun and Issachar is the blessing that we're after here is that you have a good fishing business. I believe the blessing that Zebulun and Issachar would experience was what? It says here, they shall call peoples to their mountain. There they offer right sacrifices, for they draw from the abundance of the seas. This is the blessing that they would experience, that God would bless them so that they can bless others. So the blessing here is that Zebulun and Issachar, their presence in the promised land, would have some kind of an influence on all the other tribes to worship God more fervently and intensely. He says, they shall call all the tribes and say, let's worship God on this mountain. So the blessing here is that they would be a blessing. The blessing here is that their influence would cause others to love God more. Now, in this blessing, 
how many are leaned towards more the prosperity aspect than the spiritual aspect? I want the business that's going to do well. Or do you see the second half where they will cause others to worship God with wholehearted devotion? That they will cause others to get more excited about God because of their devotion to God. If there's any blessing that you and I should ask God for, is Lord, let me be a blessing to other people's lives in their relationship with you. That is Zebulun and Issachar's blessing. They would be influencers in the land of Canaan concerning the worship of the others. Then we come down and we see who? Gad. What does it say about Gad? And of Gad, verse 20, he said, Blessed be he who enlarges Gad. Gad crouches like a lion. He tears off arm and scalp. Now let's just stop there. It speaks about him being a, a very, very ferocious warrior. But then verse 21 gives us insight into Gad's background. He chose the best of the land for himself. For there a commander's portion was reserved. Now that, let's pause here and let's do a reflection on our Bible studies in the past. Twelve tribes, right? In Israel. We learned in Numbers that three of them did not cross the Jordan, but stayed at the border to occupy the land that was there. Who were those tribes? Manasseh was one, half of the tribe of Manasseh. The next one was who? Gad, and who's the third one? Reuben. Reuben, Gad, and they influenced Manasseh to join them. They convinced Moses at the border, hey, Moses, we know that there's a promised land there, but we want to stay here. We like this land. We like the enemies that we conquered and the land that they occupied. Can we stay here? That was not God's will. But this was the deal. If you want to stay in this land and not cross the Jordan and join your brothers, that's fine. But this is what you're going to have to do. You are going to have to go into the land and fight with your brothers until they conquer their land. That's the deal. Moses says, you want to stay here? That's okay. But you got to join all the other nine and you got to fight with them. And once they're established, you can come back and do what you want to do. And the agreement was set. Gad, Reuben, Manasseh said, deal, we'll do it. And that was, that was it. But Moses gave a warning. Moses said, because Moses was going to die at that point. So Moses said, you're going to do it? And they're like, yeah, we're going to do it. But Moses would die. We're going to read that in a moment. So they could have done whatever they wanted. They could have been like, see you later, guys. We're already here. We're going to enjoy it before you do. Good luck. So that famous verse in Numbers 32, 23 is in that context. Numbers 32, 23, it's a wonderful principle to live by, especially when you face temptation. Does anybody know it even before we put it up on the screen? Be sure you're what? You sin shall find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. And he says this in the context of what we just described. So he, he knows that he's going to die. And he goes, Reuben, Gad, Manasseh, I'm not going to be here to hold you guys accountable. But you just told me and before God that you're going to go fight with your brothers. So when I'm here, that's fine. You can live how you want. But when I'm not here, be ready to know this, that if you choose to disobey this agreement, your sin will find you out. But in Deuteronomy 33, we read that he did go ahead and fight. It was a prophetic insight that they would go ahead and fight with their brothers. And so based on their reward, 
of obedience, God blesses them in this blessing. Does that make sense? So Moses knew by the Spirit, you will go and help your brothers. And he says that, read the, the blessing. And based off of that, there would be an enlargement of their territory. So here's the lesson for you and I in understanding God's blessing. That if we make vows to the Lord, and if we give God's a, a promise of, of whatever it may be, and we fulfill it, that is evidence of fear of the Lord, right? The fact that Gad and them obeyed is evidence of the fear of the Lord, not fear of Moses. We talked about that last week, right? That oftentimes our devotion is dependent upon the presence of a spiritual leader. But Moses is out of the scene at this point. But they realize we told God something. We told God something. And because we told God something, we're going to keep it. And God in heaven goes, they fear me. They honor the word that they gave. And because they honor the word that they gave, I'm going to bless them and enlarge their territory. Specifically God. So here's the blessing. Fear God and know his blessing. As simple as that. And you know you fear God is that when you tell God something, it has great significance and weight. You're not lighthearted in the way you speak to God, in the way you make commitments to God. There's a weightiness to it, and God goes, this is a man who really believes I am real. This is a woman who really takes their commitment to me seriously, and I will bless them for that. Then we come to Dan in verse 22. And if Dan, he said, Dan is a lion's cub that leaps from Bashan. Not a lion, but a lion's cub. So a, a young lion, youthful, energetic, and this is some kind of a blessing to describe how they would be able to defend themselves as a young cub. And simple lesson is that the blessing here is that they would have energy and they would have the strength to be able to do what they need to do. That's a blessing that you and I should always seek. That's a blessing that you and I should take advantage while we have it. Serve God while you're a lion's cub, not just when you're older. Verse 23 of Naphtali. What does it say about Naphtali? And of Naphtali, he said, O Naphtali, sated with favor and full of the blessing of the Lord, possess the lake and the south. Naphtali, his blessing is in the middle, I believe, that we should focus on. Full of the blessing of the Lord. So Naphtali would experience such a measure of the goodness of God that he would feel full from it. Contend for that. That when you would want something from God in terms of the spiritual blessings he would offer, that it would create a fullness in you. You would feel like your, your cup is overflowing. See, when you and I know a fullness of God's blessing, we won't go searching for other things. When you and I feel as though we are satisfied in what God is able to give us, you won't go searching because your, your spiritual belly is not going to be grumbling. Oftentimes the reason why people are trying to find some other thrill in sin is because they're grumbling in their stomachs and they're not full from the blessing of God. This is what we should strive after for God to fill us and he knows exactly how to do that. Then we come to Asher as the last one. What does it say about Asher in verse 24? And of Asher, he said, most blessed of sons be Asher. Let him be the favorite of his brothers. Wow, that's significant. And let him dip his foot in oil. Oil speaks about prosperity. To dip your foot in it means that you have a lot of it. Your bars shall be iron and bronze, and as your days, so shall your strength be. Everything about Asher's blessing speaks about 
great prosperity in the material sense. In fact, Asher would be oozing out prosperity that the brothers would look at him and be like, boy, he's favored. That the tribes would look at Asher and be like, this is, this is a blessed one. And as we described earlier, that the emphasis in the New Testament is spiritual, but God does still bless us with physical things. That's just a reality of who he is. If we are seeking God to be blessed in this measure, and if God chooses to even give this kind of a blessing to an individual, a Christian, it can be a blessing, but if not dealt with correctly, it can end up becoming a curse. This blessing has to be dealt with with such wisdom, such a fear of God, such a careful spirit, such a focus on what really matters, lest this very blessing robs you from other blessings. So Asher would know something of great wealth, of great success, where they would even protect themselves in a very, very, very mighty way. But when you read about Asher's future, unfortunately, you get the you get the hint that this blessing was more of a distraction than it was a reason to worship. Because when we go to the book of Judges, I would encourage you to, to actually turn there in verse 5, excuse me, chapter 5 of Judges. In verse 17 to 18. This is when Israel went to war. And when Israel went to war, some tribes went with them, and some tribes didn't. And they saw victory, by the way. This is with Deborah and Baruch. Something happens, though, where a song is given. And as a song is given, you see the tribes that came and the tribes that didn't join. Now look at what it says in verse 17. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. You know what this is saying? That Asher did not join the fight because Asher got distracted with his possessions. Asher got so caught up with the business by the sea. Asher got so caught up with life and, and prosperous life, by the way. So caught up with doing business and so caught up with making an income and so caught up with promotion and so caught up with business deals that when it came to an opportunity to serve God and see a mighty victory, he didn't even see it. He got the invitation and there was literally no attraction to it. He's like, I'm too busy to do my own thing. Do you see how that can become dangerous in somebody's life? And this is why you and I, when we ask God for certain things, even in the material, trust the wisdom of your father to know what you and I can handle and what you and I can register. I remember meeting a young man, a high school kid, and we're, we're speaking on the message of the rich young ruler. And after that message, he, he was so bothered by the fact that Jesus would ask him to give up his possessions. Because his ambition in life as a high school kid was to become rich and prosperous. I mean, he showed me his phone and all the things he wants, the car he wants, the apartment he wants, the clothes he wants, the experiences he wants. And I looked at him after being comfortable enough with him and said, can I say this in love? You're asking to have such a relationship with God that he would give you these things, right? He's like, yeah, that's what I want from God because I don't see how it's a sin. I don't see how it's wrong. And I looked at him and I said, the worst thing that God can do for you is give you what you're asking for. Because based on your attitude and how you're relating to these possessions, young man, you're going to destroy yourself. Well, no, I'm gonna, once I get these things, I'm going to give it to, to missions and I'm going to give it to, to, to people. I'm like, nah, I don't get that hint from you. 
Because up to the point where I just confronted you, you were talking about how you want to live it up. This will destroy you more than it will bless you. It's going to distract you from what really matters in life. Like Asher, he missed out on being invited to see victory and see God intervene. Why? Because of the coast of the sea and because of his landings. It's amazing how the Bible can speak to us in every verse. Then from verse 26 to verse 29, God gives a general blessing over all Israel. And look what he says in verse 29. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord. We can say amen to that for us. Happy are you, O Israel, who, 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 who saves you like God saves you? And you can't know that happiness until you get saved. Only when you're saved can you say, read that and go, oh, I'm happy. I know what it's like to be delivered. I know what it's like to, to come out of Egypt and to be blessed by God. Did we miss something? Look back in chapter 33 and look at the tribes. See what's missing. See if anybody, look at specifically the tribes. What are we missing here? Somebody sees it, point it out. Anybody see it yet? You're right, Isaac. Simeon is missing. This is why it's important to know the little details of the Bible, like the tribes and their names. It's not just for knowledge's sake. It's so that when you read Deuteronomy 33, you realize, oh, look, God bless all the tribes. Wait, 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 wait. Simeon isn't in there. I mean, if we're going in order, it would be Reuben, firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah. Where's Simeon? Simeon's not even mentioned in any of this. Did Moses forget? And Simeon surely was there. And here you see God through Moses blessing every single tribe. And when he comes to Simeon, he goes, whoop. And he blesses the others. And we go, why? The answer is in Genesis 49. In Jacob's prophetic utterance over the tribes. In verse 5, he comes to Simeon and Levi. And look what he says about Simeon and Levi. In Genesis 49.5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. This is a serious, serious thing to say. For in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. This is describing what happened earlier in Genesis. What happened? Uh, Dina, their sister, the only sister amongst the 12, was raped by the citizens of Shechem. And Simeon and Levi, including all the brothers, were so livid that specifically Simeon and Levi, they said, we're not going to let them do this to our sister without paying a price for it. So they come up to the Shechemites and they go, hey, Shechem, you guys want to marry, right? You guys want to be part of our family? They're like, yeah, we do. And, and here's... Here's the boy that wants to marry Dina saying, I, I love her so much and we're willing to do anything. So they say, all right, get circumcised, all of you, because God called us to get circumcised. So you all need to get circumcised as a sign of a covenant. They're like, we're willing to do it. So they all do it. And it tells us that when they were at a point where they were all sore, the men, look at this strategy. Simeon and Levi single-handedly go in and destroy everyone. But Jacob had an insight that we don't see in Genesis. They didn't just go in to kill men. They literally went with torturous force. 
You know what it means that they hamstrung oxen? There's, there's, their fury was so intense that they literally tortured innocent animals in the process. This is how possessed they were with anger. And so it's, a, it's really a, a dangerous thing that they did. They put the nation of Israel at risk because even Jacob, after the whole ordeal, says, you made us a stink in the nostrils of all the people around us. You're going to get us killed. One. Two. They went in with viciousness, as we just described here. But three, the most important is that they use circumcision, the sign of the covenant, in a perverted way. What was meant to be holy and a symbol of relationship with God, they use it as a war strategy to make sure that the men were sore so that they can go in in their weakness and kill them. So what was the consequence? Let's read in Genesis 49, verse 7. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. In other words, the judgment would be this, that when Simeon and Levi would go into the promised land, pay very close attention to this, there would not be any permanent inheritance for those tribes. So when you come to Moses' blessings in Deuteronomy 33, he doesn't include Simeon. Now listen, Simeon was still a tribe though, so what happened to them when they came into the land of promise? This is what you see in Joshua. Joshua 19.9. Look what it says about Simeon. When the land was being distributed, look what it says about the Simeonites. The inheritance of the people of Simeon formed part of the territory of the people of Judah. Do you see? Because the portion of the people of Judah was too large for them, the people of Simeon obtained an inheritance in the midst of their inheritance. So Simeon was morphed into Judah's inheritance. They did not have their own unique plot of land. Simeon, in a sense, disappeared in Judah's blessing, and there was nothing for themselves. Jacob's prophetic word was right. And it was right for Levi too. Why? Because the Levites didn't have what in the promised land? Land. The Levites would have no land. They would be scattered around Israel. But let's be honest, right? You compare Simeon and Levi, and if you're going to go with one of them, you're going to say, I'd rather be with Levi than Simeon. Because although Levi didn't have their own land, the Levites would be spiritual leaders. And they would be the counsel and the wisdom provided for the rest of the nation. That's a wonderful thing still. So why did Simeon have a different outcome than Levi? Because back at what we read in Deuteronomy 33, when they had an opportunity to prove their devotion to God, whereas before they used their sword to kill the Shechemites, they used their sword to prove their zeal for the Lord. So even though God was sure of his judgment, Levi, you're still not going to get land, but I'm able to reverse this judgment. And though you might not have a permanent dwelling place, I'm going to make you representatives of me. What about Simeon? Well, Simeon didn't answer when he said, who's on the Lord's side? Man, do you feel the mercy of God? Do you realize the depths of this? I hope I didn't talk too fast. Simeon and Levi both received the same judgment, no land because of your viciousness. But when it came to an opportunity to prove otherwise, only Levi answered. And God said, even though I'm still not going to give you land, I'm going to still make you a blessing. And I'm going to use you mightily. Well, what about Simeon? Well, he disappeared. 
He disappeared from God's program. Why? From one simple thing that I hope is the theme of this Bible study of repentance. He didn't. And the time is against me now, as I'm looking at it. But Deuteronomy 34 is short enough to close with that. Moses exhales. There before him are all the tribes of Israel. He pronounces a blessing on all of them. And he turns his back. And he climbs Mount Nebo. And he climbs Mount Nebo what? He literally steps away from his own funeral. And as he steps up there, moving away from the whole nation of Israel that he has discipled and shepherded, who is waiting for him at the top? God. And he sees the Lord. And before the Lord would put him to rest, the Lord says, Moses, come. And he brings him to a specific spot on top of Mount Nebo. And he goes, look, Moses. And it tells us there where, in verse 1 and verse 2, there's Naphtali, and there's Ephraim, and there's the land of Manasseh, and there's the land of Judah. And here's Moses, just stunned. No words coming from his mouth. And there's the Lord showcasing to him his promise. And Moses is there watching. And though he would not step into the land himself, what God wanted to show him is that Moses, my faithfulness is going to bring them in there. And you as a leader, you might not experience going in there, but know this, up to this point, your ministry will exceed your lifetime. And your faithfulness will exceed your lifetime. And the fruit of your labor will exceed your lifetime. Look at the land, Moses. And then it tells us here, in verse 5, so Moses, now look at this description of Moses. The servant of the Lord died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Listen, guys. You might, might have been bored out of your mind this whole Bible study, but please pay attention to this point. It's a point that you probably know, but you don't feel sometimes, like we all don't feel sometimes. You and I are going to die one day, okay? You and I, like Moses, are going to one day have our own funeral. But look at the description of this man and his funeral. Servant of the Lord. Is that how you want to be remembered? Uh, like if something were to be said about you at the end of your life, would you want it to be said, servant of God? I hope so. The intimacy between the Lord and Moses goes beyond the fact that he gives him a, a kind of a private tour from a distance of the land. Look at verse 6. And he, who's he? God. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. God himself buried Moses. The Jews see this as one of the most intimate experiences. That when God put Moses to death, it was one of the most gentle ways. Some would describe it a kiss to the soul. That it wasn't an aggressive way of putting him to death. It wasn't a thunderous way. There was such a gentleness in the act of him actually putting him to death. And he took it upon himself, the Lord, to not have his relatives bury him. To not have anybody else be a part of that. He goes, I'm going to put you to rest. And he buries Moses. That, that sounds like a friend to me. And if you go to Jude, the book before Revelation... You read something, and some of you are nodding your heads, and you know this description in verse 9 of Jude. And it tells us there that there's another insight to this whole funeral. 
But when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, so now, although it's very tender that God buried Moses, we know that there's a very significant reason why he did it, because the devil wanted it was disputing about the body of Moses. So the devil, apparently, was trying to get this body. And Michael the archangel comes on the scene and is fighting against this. And it says, He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. And we'll get to that in a moment. But that says something pretty important about this whole ordeal. And there are many speculations. People are wondering, why? Why would the devil want his body? Does anybody have any ideas of why? Why is, he interested, why is he so interested in his body? In what way would they stumble? That's a good insight. So many would say because the Israelites were so prone to idolatry that the devil would want to use the body of Moses as a shrine or something so that the Israelites would take their, their gaze off of, from God and put it on the man himself and begin to idolize and worship him. Do people worship men and saints today? Yes. So this is no new trick, by the way. The devil's still playing the same trick on millions of people in our day. This is speculation. Some say Moses' body would play a significant role in the future, that he might have been the two witnesses in Revelation 11. We do not know. And Jude is not concerned so much about telling us why he wanted his body. Jude is more concerned about how angel, an archangel, Michael, how he addressed the devil. How he fought against the devil. And that's a whole other Bible study on its own. So we come back in verse 7, and we're landing it here in verse 7 of Deuteronomy 34. It says, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undibbed and his vigor unabated. You know what that's trying to say? He died in full strength. Early on in Deuteronomy 31, Moses says, I no longer can go in or come out. And some people read that to say that Moses was so frail and old that he couldn't go out and come in, and so he's about to die. That's not what that verse is saying in Deuteronomy 31. What Moses is saying is that I have no control to move one step ahead apart from God's permission. And what this verse is telling us is that Moses in full strength died. God sustained the man's energy to his dying breath to serve him. And not only that, but this proves that God is the one who's sovereign over when we go home into glory. Sometimes we look at people who died, we look at ministers who died, and we go, man, he just started his ministry. He just started a family. It's just like things were about to begin. There was so much ahead of them. He was full of strength, and yet in God's wisdom, he knows when you're supposed to go. Moses probably had another 60 years in him. Who knows? But God says, enough is enough. You've served your ministry, and that's the insight. No matter how my body is, whether it's in full strength or it's falling to pieces, God knows when to call me into glory. Moses was 120 years, and here's how we're going to end. There's a, there's a really easy way to divide his life into threes. The first 40 years, where was Moses? In Egypt. The next 40 years, he was where? He was an unknown shepherd serving his father-in-law, banging with the sheep, leading the sheep, cleaning after the sheep in the wilderness for 40 years. In the last 40 years, he was doing what? He was the leader of a nation, preaching, shepherding, and miracles were performed through him like no other, the Bible tells us at the end of this chapter. 
40 years in Egypt, 40 years serving his father-in-law, 40 years in full-time ministry. In fact, Acts 7.23, it tells us he was 40 when he came out of Egypt, but it also tells us that at 40 years old, in his heart, it means it was in that place where he felt like this was the timing of his call. So he goes out, he sees an Egyptian beating up a Hebrew, and he goes... And kills the Egyptian. And he goes, okay, this is how I'm going to deliver my people. Who's next? And God looks at a Moses who had the sense of the right calling. And he goes, not yet, Moses. Let's put you in the wilderness and deal with some sheep. Because you're going to deal with some interesting people when you leave Egypt. And deliver them. You know what that tells me at the end of Moses' life? I hope this encourages you as, as much as it encouraged me. 80 years of preparation, 40 years of service. 80 years of preparing the man, 40 years of using the man. God tends to do that a lot in the Bible and show us how there are so much years of silence in a person before there is a public manifestation of their ministry. Be patient with yourself. And be patient with God's dealing with you in the school of God in your life. For 40 years, there was something learned about what? There was something learned about eternity. There was something learned about not getting caught up with the system of the world. There was something learned about seeing Christ more beautiful than seeing the pleasures of this land. That's what he learned those first 40 years. The second 40 years, he learned how to serve his father-in-law. And he learned how to deal with sheep. And he learned how to lead them. And he learned how to clean them. And he learned how to shave them. And he learned how to rescue them. And he learned how to run after them. And, and here's God watching. You pass the first class in the first 40 years. You're not in love with this world. But let's see if you can deal with sheep on a leadership level. And he passed that. 80 years being in the school of God. And then he says, let's use your last 40. Many of us, we want five years of preparation and 125 years of service. Hey, I mean, I'm not saying that in judgment. I'm saying that that's all of our hearts. Lord, use me as much as I, you can with my life, my short life. Use me in my youth. Use me in my young adult years. And God says, I see what you have in your heart, Moses, at 40. And some of us even try to do it. We try to push doors open and we try to make God's call happen. So we go out to an Egyptian and we go, okay, I know I'm supposed to deliver these people. There's no way that God put me here for just lollygagging. I got to get to work. You. And he kills them. And then, and then he, he wonders and God goes, listen, if you do it at this pace, it's not going to go anywhere. I want to bury them all in the Red Sea. You doing it one by one is going to take you 120 years. God knows how much time we need in his school before we graduate. So if you desire to serve God, remember Moses' life. Moses was the most intimate man. He spoke to God face to face. Moses was a man of God. Moses was a servant of the Lord. And yet Moses needed 80 years of preparation. See, because if God does it earlier, even if you are serving at a capacity of ministry, it will not have the depth and it will not have the fruit that it can't have unless the roots get deeper. Don't rush the process for the sake of serving God when God wants to deposit in you that will make your ministry so much more effective. So much more effective. In fact, it was so effective that it would cross his lifetime, as we just read. And you read at the end of Deuteronomy that Joshua took the baton and he would go ahead and he would finish the work that Moses started. So as, as this is coming to an end, Deuteronomy, 
perhaps this will be the beginning for many of you, that you will decide to be a man or a woman of God from this point on. That before that you were a Christian and you walked into church and you did certain things here and there, but you, did not, you cannot look at Hebrews 11, 24 and 27 and say, that's me. God can change that. In fact, you could be so much worse. You could be the opposite of a blessing like Jacob and you just destroyed people's lives, including your own. God's willing to change that and make you a blessing. You have to choose it though. So at the end of this Bible study, at the end of this series in the book of Deuteronomy, take it as an invitation from the Lord like he did for the Levites and he'll give you a sword tonight. And some people in here need to go home and convince themselves that it's better to consider God even above my friends and family. And some people in here need to be encouraged because you're already serving God and you're frustrated because you want to do things for God and you're looking at other people's lives and you're going, well, how come he's being used and how come she's being used and and why is that happening to them and not happening to me when God knows what classes you and I need to take in his school before we're used? Be encouraged. And be encouraged in your Bible reading that God has something to say to you in every book, in every chapter, in every verse. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to begin by saying thank you for leading us through the book of Deuteronomy over these weeks and months. Thank you for all the the truths that have been excavated from these verses and chapters. But God, we don't want to be impressed by insight. We don't want to simply be um, stirred by truth in our minds. We want to change. Help us change. Lord, we read in your word about blessings given to different tribes for different reasons. And some of those reasons are known and some of those reasons are not known. But for the reasons that are known, help us, Lord, to make the choices in life, to position ourselves, to be showered upon by your goodness. Lord, for every life in here, may at the end of it all, May it be said of each of us, she was a servant of God. He was a servant of the Lord. Oh, he was a man of God, not just in the beginning of his life. He walked with God. He walked with God. She walked with God. Oh, she was a mother of three. Oh, he had a full-time job. Oh, even he made a lot of money, but more importantly, man of God. Servant of the Lord. Help us live a life by your grace that even if people don't see us as that, one day you would. We want that more than anything, Lord. And tonight we ask that you would help us imitate Moses. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, Lord, help us grow. Help us grow. Help us in our 20s and 30s be able to live in Egypt and still have that faith, those convictions. Lord, as we sit in your presence, we ask that you would deal with us accordingly. The same way you dealt with every tribe personally, deal with us personally in this room. 
Let us not leave here the same way we came in. But Lord, as this is the end of a Bible study in the series of Deuteronomy, let it be the beginning of so much in our own lives. So we take our time to say, Lord, speak for your servants are listening. Yes, Lord, we give you this night in Jesus' name.